0: Hi, can you hear me now? Okay. And uh, something is happening to me, if not to the people around me. Uh, One of the things that is happening to me is uh, it's a great time because I am most of the time alone uh, in my room or on my walks. And what is happening is all what I have learned over the years is slowly now uh, God is enabling me to... You know, meditate on those things, and he is giving me some better insight. I wouldn't say deeper insights, but better insights, which makes it possible for better applications. And uh, <clears throat> he's been very good. Actually, I am torn between this place and the place that I am in. Uh, it's not easy for my family being here alone. And it's neither easy for me being there alone. But I don't know, somehow I am still in love with that place and with the people there. And I cannot bring myself, you know, there are so many people in my own department who's saying, Jason, do this, we want you back and things like that. But my heart is not allowing me to, you know, I do it because they say it, I don't want to offend them. So I do it, but still a good part of my heart is still there. Somehow I want to, you know, and it is against a lot of people. People say a lot of things, but I don't know. I somehow cannot let go. So it is something like a bug which has caught me and God has been very good. I have been experiencing his companionship. I've been experiencing his love. These days I don't get mad. I get pained. Really, my heart really breaks these days. I cry very easily. And previously I used to be really upset. Things don't upset me, it pains me. Uh, So these are some of the things that is happening in my life. Maybe it's my age to do, maybe I'm going through some hormonal changes, who knows. (laughs) But I can sense God and I can truly say God has been my companion and he has been my friend. He has been there for me in ways that I've never experienced in these past five months. Then, you know, maybe when I started off as a Christian, that was maybe another time. But now, in the next 45 minutes, what I want to do is, as I usually say, I have nothing new to say. But at the same time, I hope to remind you in fresh ways of how God chooses to work. And what I want to share this morning uh, I owe a great uh, deal of debt to James Boyce Montgomery, he is, uh, uh, you know, he's a uh, theologian at uh, um, Princeton and uh, his very brief, very simple article on God's providence you know, put, brought together a lot of things of my thoughts and he put it in such simple ways because that is the beauty of scholars, they are able to simplify things, profound things in simple ways. And I owe a lot of debt to him, a very small article by the title of God's Providence by James Boyce Montgomery. It just came together with what I wanted to share this morning. Uh, I am sharing from Genesis chapter 37. It's a very familiar story and I want to draw some very practical but at the same time, very it's, it's profound but it's very simple at the same time about God's dealing in human affairs, okay? Or God's plans and purposes for, um, for the world. So Genesis chapter 37, it starts in the ESV like this. Uh, Jacob lived in the land of his father's uh, journey in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, or this is the account of Jacob. And uh, it goes on to talk about Joseph being 17 years old, uh, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And he was with the sons of his father's wives. And uh, we see in verse 3 that Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now tell me how many of you know the story of Joseph here? Is there anyone who doesn't know the story of Joseph? The story of Joseph is... And okay, let me read it to you. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are... We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he has another dream. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and his brothers, it was, you know, now he's telling his father, his everyone involved, uh, his father rebuked him, not only his brother, his father rebukes him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamt? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And now there is an incident where his uh, brothers have gone to shepherd the flock. They have gone far away. So now the father sends Joseph after them just to inquire about their well-being. So that is the scene what we hear, what we see here. And so now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are you are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. You know, they he couldn't find them where he thought they were. And so he comes to uh, Shechem and he found a man. A man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? So he is wandering in the field, you know, maybe wasting his time, and here comes a man and says, what are you doing here? And so he tells, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flocks? And the man says, they have gone away. Actually, it says, I have overheard them, okay? Okay. Uh, ESV says i have heard i for i heard them say let us go to dothan so joseph went after his brothers and found them at dothan they saw him afar. now he is coming to there so somebody overhears the conversation of the brothers okay while joseph is wandering around this man comes and says what are you doing he's saying i'm seeking my brothers and somebody this guy seems to have overheard his brothers saying that they are going to a particular place and so now he is giving him the direction and Joseph is going to see his brothers. Now his brother sees him from afar before he came near to them. They conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes a dreamer. So his dream is a big problem. Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let's, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams? See, this dream is a big issue here. It's not just the robe. It's the dream, which is causing so much heartache, you know. So you kill the dreamer, you kill the dream. That is what they thought would happen. And But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben uh, said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, so he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the robe of many colors he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Look at this, guys. They threw him in the pit and the next thing is they sat down to eat. And now by chance, they're looking up and they're seeing a caravan of the Ishmaelites, or the slave traders, coming along. <laughs> just the, just uh, the spur of the moment, with the camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah says to his brothers, actually the word brother is used 21 times in this short chapter. That's the irony of this chapter. And this Judas, look at him. This is the height of the irony. What is Judah telling his brothers? What profit is it if we kill who? Our brother and conceal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not a hand be upon him. Why? For he is our brother. Okay? Our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. Then the Midianist traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites. For 20 shekels of silver, they took Joseph to Egypt. And then we know the story. And that's how it ends. In verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. And in between, they take that robe, they dip it in somebody's blood, uh, an animal's blood, bring it to the father and say, is this your son's robe? And the father says, yes. And he is heartbroken. Okay? He thinks his beloved son is dead. That is the story of chapter 37. Now, what we have here is a weak, wounded, fractured family with an insensitive father, important oldest brother, and hardened brothers. <coughs> A family that is outwardly united by flesh and blood, but inwardly divided by hatred, desiring to kill Joseph. That's the picture we have. Now the whole plot, as I was saying, is driven by one, you know, uh, by conflict and the irony of it, this as I said around twenty one times the word brother is used. Let us look at some of the main characters in the story. And I want to quickly go through the story because I want to draw some lessons from it. One of the characters who stands out is Joseph himself. How is he introduced? He is introduced as a talebearer. He is a snitch. He talks, you know, about his brother. You know, my brothers—they were doing these little things. He comes to the father and reports on them. Okay, he's like a spoiled brat. Insensitive, immature. He tells his father also a dream where he is you know, telling his father, now you're also going to bow down to me. He has no, you know, he's he is so immature, insensitive, right? But look at how God has transformed him. As the story progresses, you will see as you go on in the different chapters, he's seen as a noble character who emerges as pious, loyal, discerning, bold, that even Pharaoh has to admit. Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Chapter 41 and verse 38. And Joseph, we know, goes on to become God's future agent and mouthpiece in Egypt. The second character is Judah. He is brilliant. Okay? He is a study in contrast. He is portrayed as a cold, calculating leader. He saves his brother from death and sends him to a living death, that is of a slave. Mm? And he is, he is a contrast to Joseph in many ways. Now, Joseph, you know the story, he was in Potiphar's house, and his wife wanted to have sex with him, so he says, I cannot do that, and he runs away from Potiphar's wife, and while running away, he leaves behind his garment, right? Right? And she, Potiphar's wife, uses the garment to send Joseph to prison, an innocent man to prison, right? Saying that this man came to abuse me and things, things. But when you look at Judah, this guy guy is very interesting. He, his daughter-in-law, for various reasons, you can go home and read, disguises herself as a temple prostitute and sits by the way where she knows Judah is going to come along. So Judah comes along, sees this lady who is actually his daughter-in-law and thinks she's a temple prostitute and she, he says, can I have you? And you know what Judah does? He doesn't have any money. So what does he do? He says, okay, for a guarantee, I will send you the money later, but for guarantee, I will leave you my garment, my stuff, my ring, everything. I will leave it with you so that... You know, after everything is done, I will send you the payment. So you look at it, and it's very interesting. Potiphar's wife talks about Joseph as being making a sport of her, while Judah becomes a joke himself. Because after everything is done, he, you know, he tries to pay the temple prostitute, and everybody says, There is no one like a temple prostitute here. And later on, he comes to know it was his own daughter in law, and uh, he says, She is more righteous than I am, okay? So, yet Judah is also transformed. He is also transformed. Actually, if you read the story, if you go through Genesis, he is more sensitive to his father than even Joseph. He is more sensitive to his father than even Joseph. And we see Reuben. He is a picture of a failed leadership, and he is a mess, okay? Okay? Then we see Jacob, He is a loving father, but he loves his son, Joseph. He is insensitive, he doesn't really know anything that is going on with his other kids. What is going on in their mind, he has no clue. He is insensitive, he doesn't. And what about the brothers? They are all driven by evil. You can see in verse 2, 4, 8, 11, 20, 28, 31, everything, all brothers are driven by evil. But interestingly, if you look at this account of chapter 37, you will find something very interesting. It is not really the story of Jacob or Joseph. It is actually a story of God's providence. How God uses certain situations to bring about His purposes. Okay? Now, let me just draw some lessons. Now, the first thing, when I talk about the providence of God, the first thing we need to understand is, God chooses to work through his creation. He has not abandoned his creation. What I mean by that is, God can choose to do his work through his angels, maybe. Through, through, he does his work through angels. Or, he can do his work, by himself he doesn't need anybody to do his work but he still chooses his creation to do his work like for example in this story you will see that he uses his the actions and the things that his brothers and the father does to do to bring about his plans and purposes so that is the first thing the second thing about the providence of god and that is what i want to focus this uh, afternoon is this now if we were all good and if we were to obey god's plan there would be no problem right means if god told love your neighbor and we all loved loved our neighbors we would be fulfilling god's plan but you know where the problem comes because the majority of humans do not obey god and a lot of them consciously and willfully disobey God. Now, when, they, when people sin or when they disobey God, how does God use that disobedience to bring about His purposes? Now, <clears throat> I want to bring home a point, and I want you to listen to this carefully. If you don't listen to anything else, but please listen to this. When people sin, for example, when I do something against God, when God tells me to do something and I do something against it, we often think, Then, then what, what do we think? God That God just lets us go. You know, he says, you want to go your way, you go your way. I often hear that expression. God is saying, you don't want me, go your way. I want to change that thinking. It's not like that. There is no free passes in our world. Okay, Because it is God's world and even when we disobey Him, we will disobey, disobey Him in, on His own terms. Now let me explain this to you. For that, let me go to Romans chapter 1, reading from verse 21 on. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now I want you to listen. Verse 24. So what is the first few verses saying? They knew God. They didn't give him the glory that is due to him. They willfully turned their back to him. Okay? That is a scene. Verse 24. It reads like this. Therefore... God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is the first time it says, therefore they, he gave them over. See, it is not like when you disobey God, God lifts his hand and says, now you can do what you like. When you choose to disobey God, There are consequences set in motion by God himself. I want you to know that. You you are not free in this universe. There is no absolute freedom. You can choose to disobey God, but the consequence of that disobedience will follow the laws and rules set in place by God. For example... Pride goes before a fall. If you are going to be anxious and under stress for a long time, what happens? You can get peptic ulcers or your BP can go up. It's the law that is set in place. So, when they choose not to acknowledge Him as God, He didn't say, okay, you can go your way. But the Bible says He gave them over to something. There is, the consequence is decided by God. As there are consequences, as there are laws which governs our universe, like for example, there's a the law of gravity, right? Everything that goes up, goes up, comes down. In the same way, there are spiritual laws in place. If you disobey God, the consequences will follow as God has set in motion. Don't ever think you can get away doing what you like. So the first thing is, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and it goes on. Look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions and talks about, you know, all all kinds of lifestyles, which is not pleasing to God. Look at verse 28. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. So what am I trying to bring home is this. You choose to obey God, there are consequences. What is it? You find blessing. You find favor with God. You choose to disobey Him, there are consequences. But who has set it in place? God has set it in. There are no free passes in this universe. You will play by God's rule. You cannot play by your own rules. We in our culture are told again and again, we can play by our own rules. It's the lie. You and I can never play by our own rules. We are always playing Even when we think we play by our own rules, we are always playing by God's rules. Because God is still ruler and king of His creation. He has set in place what follows. You know, if you do this, this is what follows. If you do this, this is what follows. If you obey me, there is blessing. If you disobey me, there are curses. If you if you love my son, you have eternal life. If you don't love him, you will go to hell. We always play by his role. You know, there is no absolute freedom. I want to disabuse you of that. People say we are free, we are free, we are free. There is no absolute freedom because of our very being, because we were born one day, and the definite fact of the matter is we will die one day, and that itself curtails our freedom. Go home and think about it. The only one who has absolute freedom is God who has no beginning and no end. Everything which has a beginning and an end doesn't have and cannot have absolute freedom. And thank God he has not given us absolute freedom. Think, if evil men and women were to be given absolute freedom, this world would sink into a cesspool of, I don't know if you and I would be alive today. It is only God's grace which restrains evil from taking over. So, we need to keep that in mind. That When you disobey God, there are consequences, and the consequences are set in place by God. You and I will always have one... You you and I need to keep this in mind, that we will always live under the rule of God, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. God is still ruler. The second, you know, there's another thing. This same principle applies even to us believers. Jonah is a classic example. What did God tell him? Go to Nineveh, right? And what did he do? He went to Joppa, somewhere in Palestine. Took a ticket to go to Tarshish, somewhere in Spain, maybe. He wanted a nice vacation in Spain. All right, from this stressful thing of being God's missionary. What did God do? God put him in the belly of the whale for three days. He came to his senses. And then what did he do? He did exactly what God told him to do. But God had to take some drastic measures. He had to bring the grandfather and the grandmother of all storms, which almost capsized the ship that he was going in. He then created a very specific whale for him. And there was wind and storm. He, God, you know, actually had to move around, you know, do things with the with his awesome nature, the sea, the fish, everything so specific and personal, and finally finds himself in an environment, in the belly of that whale. Finally, he comes to his senses, and God says, okay, now we'll spit you out on the shore. You better go and do what I want you to do. You know, the same thing applies to Christians. You disobey God, the consequences are something which is set by God. You will go through it. Because even Christians, at least we acknowledge the fact, will live under the rule of God. And this is a sobering truth. So what is better, to disobey Him or to obey Him? To obey Him. Because even when we disobey Him, we will reap what He has set in place. There's another thing that I want to bring home. The third thing is Romans 8 and verse 28. What does it say? For we know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Now in all things we all know, in all things means good, bad, and the ugly. The good, evil, the pure, the impure. In all things God works together for The good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Now there are two areas in which God uses evil for good and must be considered. One is, how God uses the evil of others. Okay? Now we saw in chapter 37, how God uses the evil of others to sustain his people. That is a story of how God, uh, you know, because Joseph has been sold into Egypt, uh, Joseph is able to or what you call, uh, become, you know, the second to the Pharaoh, you know, provide for the children of Israel, and so that their lineage can continue, and Jesus comes into the picture, and all of those things. Joseph, the evil done to him, finally, God uses it to fulfill his purposes in sustaining his people. So that is like, for example, the book of Hosea. You know, it's a tragic story. The evil of his wife, Gomer, Right? Uh, through the unfaithfulness of his wife, Gomer. God uses his, his experience, that Hosea's experience, to bring forth one of the most beautiful, moving, and instructive books of the Old Testament. Right? The unfaithfulness of Gomer. Hosea didn't do anything. He was an innocent man. The evil of his wife. There is a book by John Piper called The Seventh Spectacular Sin. I gave it to someone. The book is still to come back, or did someone give it back to me? I don't know. Huh? All right, it is back with me. All right. Huh? Uh, and it talks about seven spectacular sin, and, and in the context of that, look at the evil that was done to our Lord Jesus Christ, and look at the good that God brought about. People hated him. People hated his holiness, his pure life. They hated him for what he spoke. They gave him an, a hard, hard, you know, wooden cross. They nailed him. They spat at him. They put him to death. There was evil perpetuated upon him like no one in history. The innocent man who was declared innocent by the government of Rome as represented by Pontius Pilate who said at least three times, I find no guilt. He wanted to save him but he was spineless enough to do that. He's See the evil that was perpetuated. We did listen to that in a very brief measure. You know when our brother Vijay was sharing it? He bore it all. But look at it. They finally crucified him. Finally, they taught him that we have got away with him. But he rose up from the grave. And that evil, which was real, it was not imagined, which is true, what happened? He turned it for our good. That's why you and I are sitting here today saying, thank you, Jesus. In his death, burial, and resurrection, you and I have salvation. Do you think the evil that was done to him was anything less? No. The people who put him on the cross are guilty for what they did. Because Jesus said, temptations will come, but woe to them through whom it comes. God is not a partner in evil. He's, he does evil. He uses evil. To, you know, people see the ultimate story, we'll come to that. But look at it. God uses the evil that is perpetuated upon our Savior to rescue us. So sometimes when we go through pain and when people are not very nice to us and when there is real injustice being done to us, when real evil has been thrown upon us, remember one thing. That God can turn it around to fulfill His purposes, not just in your life, but in the life of others. But I want to bring it a little more closer home. What about the sins that we do? What about the evil that we indulge in? How God uses that to fulfill His purposes? I think that is a little more uncomfortable, right? The evil of others is a bit more easy to talk. But what about the evil that is we we perpetuate, that we do to others. How does God use that to bring about his divine purposes? The story of Joseph is a good example, right? Look at the story of Joseph. What did his brothers do? They sold him as a slave. What did Potiphar's wife do? She accused him wrongfully. So he ends up in Prison and because he is in prison he meets with those cup bearer and the wine bearer and the wine bearer then recommends that he has forgotten Joseph for two years and then suddenly he remembers him to Pharaoh and then Pharaoh has a dream which he interprets and then Pharaoh makes him second to him and then he takes care of all of those things and who is benefiting in the end who is surviving because of all the evil That this brother, the brothers are the ones who enjoy the benefit of it, right? Look at it. The brothers who are so evil, who thought they could kill the dreamer and his dream, are the ones in the end who is benefiting. They were hungry and if they were to stay in wherever they were, and if there was no food, you know, that Joseph brought about for the world at that time, His brothers would have died. The same brothers who put Joseph in the well, their evil somehow God uses to provide for themselves. Did you see that? How gracious God is? But does that mean you and I should go on sinning, do evil so that God can use that evil to bring us something good? As we read in Romans chapter 3, Paul is accused of saying that should we sin more so that grace may abound. You know, the evil of others, how, you know, God takes it and uses it. Our own evil, how God sometimes uses it. Not sometimes, at all times he uses it. Again to fulfill his purpose. The evil of these hardened brothers, how it is used by God. To keep them alive is a story of God's providence. That is a story of God's providence. You know, finally, what is that God wants to tell us today? You know, as I said, there, is, there will always be some who hear such a truth and immediately cry out that it teaches that Christians may sin with impunity. You know, But it doesn't teach anything of that kind, let me tell you. Sin is sin. It has consequences. Evil is still evil. But you know what the point is? But God is greater than all the evil that is around us. Evil is evil and sin is sin. But our God is greater than all the evil, all the injustice, all the wrongs, and all that is so, so, you know, miserable and ugly and untrue and and terrible and horrible. But our God is bigger than all of those things. That is the providence of how he takes all of these things and uses to bring about his plans and purposes. His unchangeable plans and purposes. When humans think that they can somehow, you know, thwart or change the plan and purpose of God, the God in heaven sits and laughs at them. Thinking how stupid humans are to think, That they can disobey me, they can, you know, turn their back to me and think they can derail my plans and purposes, which I have set in motion even before the worlds began. That is the story of God's providence. Now, let me tell you something. The providence of God does not relieve us of our responsibility. God works through the integrity, hard work, obedience, faithfulness of Christian people. I'm not telling you shouldn't be any of those things. God uses that. Your hard work, your integrity, your prayer life. He uses all of those things. But you know the great thing about our God? People ask me, why do I pray? And it always humbles me that God in some way has Made in his grand scheme of things, he made a small spot for Jason's prayer in that plan. So when he is going from A to B to C to D to E, that B is where Jason will come in with his prayer. It is not that, you know, his plans will not go on, but my prayer is a part of that A, you know, following it B. That's where I am placed because God is great, because He is gracious. He says, though Jason is a puny, unreliable, you know, you know, of no, you know, he has nothing, you know, means he is of no repute and no consequence. But I, in my love, is going to give him a spot in my eternal plans and purposes where I am going to use His prayer to further my plans. And when I have that understanding, when I come to Him to pray, how do I pray? I tell Him, God, I thank You that You give me this opportunity to pray that our nation may be saved. Because if God has already decreed that they will be saved, they will be saved, but I do it with a sense of that gratitude. God, that You should even think of me as who should have a role in your great, grand plans and purposes. That is why I pray. Why do I share the gospel? Not because I can save someone. Only God can save people. But God has chosen Jason to be a small part, a, chain, a link in that grand chain. And I am privileged to be part of it. And that is what makes me grateful to God not because I can bring someone to Christ, because that's God who does it, but my role that God has established even before the foundations of the world. That is the providence of God. I want you to know that. Your prayers are not insignificant. Your word of comfort to another person is not insignificant. Though God is the one who brings comfort, your word of comfort is what God has in His eternal plans decided He will use to bring comfort into the life of another person. Did you, do you see that now, how it works? Do you see it? How God has made each one of us so significant in his working out of his plans and purposes? You're not insignificant. Your kind word is not insignificant. You may think, oh, I just spoke and you left. No, it is not insignificant. God retains it. God remembers it. God has a plan and purpose for that small act of yours, which even in your own eyes was so insignificant, which may not have cost you anything. But for God, it is part and parcel of what he is accomplishing. So when you do something, go with that awareness that when I do something right, wrong, good, bad, go with that awareness that the grace of God, especially as people of God, God is going to use it in some way. And when you sin, you say, God, I messed up, but I know you can clean it up for me. You're going to redeem it. You're going to make something beautiful out of it. Doesn't that comfort us? Even when you see the wrongs that is going around, which breaks our heart, which pains us, which brings tears to our eyes, we can still come to God and say, God, I know this is not right, but I know you're going to make something beautiful out of it because it is going to bring about your plan and purposes. You see, that's the greatness of our God. He still rules. I want you to know that. God is still ruler over all things. And as I said, this whole idea, this whole understanding of how God works should take us to a step closer to God in gratitude and also relieve us of our stress and anxiety of doing something for God, we can be comfortable in the fact that as the Lord enables, we do what God requires of us. You know, that is the story of this last section of the book of Genesis, starting chapter 37 on. It is not about the shattered, divided family. It's about God's redeeming act in history. Will you give me your ears and listen carefully for a few more lines before I close? It is about how God weaves his story in and through the lives of his chosen people. And I want to tell you this, even as I talk, tell this to myself. Our lives may seem without direction, purpose, and meaning. You know, just recently I was talking to someone and they were saying, so what are the big questions you ask? Where I came from? Where I go? What am I doing? What is my destiny? You know what I told the person? I said, no, I don't even ask those questions because the world is so busy. I don't even have time to ask where did I come from? (laughs) What is my purpose? How many of you ask what is my purpose? I want to honestly, I want to do a survey. How many of you ask what is my purpose in life? Do you have time to ask that? Sometimes, that's a good thing if you have time to ask that. Because we are so caught up with life, right? We are so caught up with life. We don't even ask those questions. We don't even have time for those questions. You know, our lives may seem without direction, without purpose, without meaning. It may seem like it is going nowhere. How many times I've heard this. I don't know where it is going, but it's going somewhere. It may seem like it is going nowhere. We may be plagued with setbacks and failures. Our lives may be pained by the insensitivity and callousness of others. We too may be guilty of not being what we should be to our brothers and sisters. But I want you to remember this as God's people. I want you to remember this. God is at work. He will recreate us. To bear the image of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He will recreate us. The good, bad and the ugly, that is you and me. The motley crew that God has picked in His Son. He will recreate us. Whatever you are, wherever you are, however messed up you are. He will recreate us to bear the image of His Son. And that is the glorious gospel. He will make us like His Son. We will bear His image. That is the story of Genesis. And that is the story of the Bible. That is the story of Genesis. And that is the story of the Bible. When I look at my life, sometimes I ask, where am I going? What am I doing? Where have I got myself into this mess? But I know at the end of the day, I'm going to be Jesus. How many of you believe that? Are you going to be like Jesus? Are you all going to be Jesus? However messed up your life is today. You know why? Because God loves you so much. He gave his life for you. He is worth it all. Wouldn't you want to serve a master like that? Who takes your setbacks, your successes, your downfalls, your highs. He takes it all together. And brings it together for his glory. And he makes something beautiful out of it. And that is our hope. And that is what we long for. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this time. And thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promise, O Lord, that he who has begun a good work in us will see to completion. O God, we are grateful to you for all things. Thank you for this time. And thank you for your people. Help us, Lord, to fall in love with you once again, to fall in love with one another once again as brothers and sisters, so that in all things you may get the glory and that our lives will bring more and more and more glory to you in the days and the years to come if you give it. For your honor and for your glory, we ask and offer this prayer. Amen.